Pushkin. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side-by-side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at NerdWallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. What if AI could help your business deliver mission-critical outcomes with speed? With IBM Consulting, your business can design, build, and scale trusted AI using Watson X and modernize the way you work to accelerate real impact. Let's create AI that transforms your business. Learn more at ibm.com consulting. IBM, let's create. My father passing began a obsession with death. But I had a lot of people pass. My mom was the youngest of nine. And so there were lots of aunts and uncles who were just passing all the way through my upbringing. But it was sort of like, it's honestly like, it's like being told that you have a third arm or something. Like you almost don't feel the wound because it was cut so long ago. But now as I'm an adult and I started to explore it, yeah, there's a lot of stuff I've had to kind of process about that, about not feeling like I had a full father figure to show me how to walk through the world as a man, period, as a black man, period. Not even the gay part, just like, how do you navigate this world as a black man? I didn't have somebody doing that in front of me. I was really improvising, you know? That was Justin Simeon. I'm Sam Fragoso, and this is Talk Easy. Welcome to the show. Hello everyone, welcome to the podcast. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso, and today on the show is Justin Simeon. My voice is a little bit shot. I'm going to blame doing karaoke twice last week. I really got to stop singing What You Won't Do For Love by Bobby Caldwell. It's 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 getting out of hand, and honestly, I, I need a new song. So if you have any suggestions for me, I'm open to them. You can send them to our email at talkeasypod at gmail.com. I gotta stop doing Bobby Caldwell. I also cannot do, because I've done him too many times, Hello It's Me by Todd Rundgren, Oh Darling by The Beatles, Baby Come Back by Player, 
Dirty Work by Steely Dan. Do not recommend these songs. I've done them too many times for my friends. It's embarrassing at this point. Um, but you know what's not embarrassing? That's what we call a segue. Justin Simeon. Justin is the showrunner, the producer, creator of Dear White People. The show, which is now available to stream on Netflix, recently dropped its third season, uh, or third volume, as they like to call it. And uh, here's a bit from the trailer. You know, I'm done with Dear White People. Is this some Black Mirror shit? Everybody's acting so different from the traits they previously established. You guys used to care. People still care, but people change. If everyone stayed exactly the same, life would be tedious and predictable. Like a third season of a Netflix show. I see you've been watching closely. The Order is more powerful than you will ever know. You must kill the narrator. Okay, no more Scooby-Doo mysteries. <gasps> Unless I can be Daphne. Lionel, you're Velma. That's right. We're all in this together. The only voice you need in your head is your own. Kill the narrator. Close your eyes and go to sleep. You're all going to die. Violent, horrible deaths where only your dental records can be used to identify your charred corpses. Okay, the townspeople are out of pocket. Mm -hmm. Think moonlight meets sex in the city, but boiling over with all the tea. You know, before there was a uh, excellent three-season television program, uh, Justin wrote and directed Dear White People as a film uh, back in 2014. And I have this memory. It, it premiered at Sundance and kind of took over the festival. Um, it became seemingly culturally relevant for reasons that had very little to do with filmmaking. It seemed people, and, and by people, uh, let me be honest, uh, I mean white people, had an issue with the show being called Dear White People. Why couldn't there be a program called Dear Black People? Why couldn't there be a, you know, it's so offensive. How dare you call out white people and their privilege? You know, that seems like a really a problem um, of, of four or five years ago. It seems we have a whole new set of problems now. But um, I bring all this up because uh, upon revisiting the film, for this podcast. I just want to get it out there. This is a damn good movie. And um, the show, Dear White People, on Netflix now is a really fantastic show. I think Justin and the team have done a great job with it. And it is every bit as relevant and timely and biting as it should be. Oh, and uh, last thing before we go. Um, in reading about Justin for the interview, uh, there is... Uh, an interview he gave in which he said uh, about the press, you put us in these little boxes and bows. What we do on the show is present people as they are and then rip off the lid and show you who they are. I've been looking for a way to describe this podcast to people. I fail every time. People ask me, well, what's the show about? What's the show about? I now have an answer. I hope you'll find that we did that this week with the one and only Justin Simeon.
I've done a decent amount of research. Okay. <laughs> I've even texted a couple people we both know for questions. Sure. Because I've read interviews. There's not that much out there. Mm. And it seems you're asked the same things many times. It's true. <laughs> so I'm going to try to get away from it. Do what you want to do, The man. best I can. It's up to you. This is your time. Okay. Can, can, <laughs> can we go back? Of course. Okay. Um, you grew up in Houston, Texas. Yes. Uh, you mentioned in one interview, you're at the high school for the performing and visual arts. Mm-hmm. It is uh, described by you as one of the most formative times in your life. Yeah. Why is that? I think it was the first time there was that much attention paid to me by adults um, who were just interested in the crazy, weird parts of us. You know, they wanted us to, they were trying to get us to come alive and not just sort of sit back and let art come to us, but engage with art and lean into it. I mean, I was a theater major. Um, majors are weird to say in high school, but that was like the, I was in the theater department. Mm-hmm. And the first thing we started to do was to dissect Raisin in the Sun, of all things. This is my acting teacher. Um, an intro to theater. She put on, and her name is Susie Phillips, and she's amazing, and amazing, and uh, like our mother, <laughs> basically. But she put on Raisin in the Sun, and she would stop the movie every few minutes and ask us, well, why do you think they made that choice? And she meant anything. She meant why is why is the frame set up the way it's set up? Why are we in a close-up now? Why are why are they acting in that particular way? Why do you think they they pick that pattern on his shirt? Everything. And she made us see that and all of the teachers there were trying to do this in some different and in, in various ways, but they made us see that it was actually choices. You know, conscious or unconscious, art is is a series of choices. And just because it's moving fast and it's kind of activating your subconscious, not your conscious, some of these choices, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't pay attention to them. Mm-hmm. And that was the way they introduced acting concepts to us and stage design concepts and how to read plays was from a, a perspective of assume everything is, has been chosen very carefully and um, engage with the work on its stated intent, not yours for it. Mm-hmm. For her to take, for her, for all of them, for, for the entire experience of that school, to have the things that are making you come alive be the thing that these adults around you are so interested in nurturing in you and nurturing a way for you to find your way into the art and to find yourself within the art. I mean, there's just, there was nothing like that happening, you know, and, and, um, my mother who always, you know, tried to give me the best opportunities. I don't think she really understood what it was about theater and, and film in general that was, I don't think she under, she could understand that at that time. Even though she was a teacher? She's a, she's a counselor. But in her mind, you know, her son is going to grow up, I think, and be a doctor or a lawyer or be something that she aspired to. Mm-hmm. And so the arts are scary to the mother of a black child <laughs> because... That is a, you know, when you think about black men in the arts, it's a sad history. Even the ones that we love, continuing to this day, a sad fate befalls people if they make it. (laughs) Like, that's the best case scenario. And so for me to go into the arts without any thought to 
you know, what my how to get benefits and how to have a savings account and stuff like that. Like she she didn't I didn't I don't think that computed for her at that time. Yeah. And so savings account. Yeah, just sort of the things that adult people do and that she had to struggle to do, you know what I'm saying, and have for herself. She wanted me to have those things, too, and protect me and all that. But I wanted to figure out, you know, I remember watching the X-Men cartoon as a kid, and it dawned on me that it has to be someone's job to say, okay, now we're going to cut to Storm mm-hmm. in a close-up. And now we're going to cut to a wide shot and see everybody battling. And now we're going to do that. And, and I didn't know it was a film. I didn't know that was called a film director at the time. But the people at PVA were interested in teaching me more about that. And, you know, I think to my mom, that that sort of stuff just sounded like, okay, who cares? <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. I just, I figured out who I was there. I figured out what I, my voice happened there. Whatever my voice is, it began to come online during that time. Why do you think, looking back, that you, Justin, at like 16, was interested in being like, I want to do the decisions. I want to make those. Well, it was much earlier than that. You know, it was more like 12 or 13. And and HSPVA, I had never done theater before. But theater was the closest thing to what I was thinking about, that I was thinking, oh, it must be someone's job. And I think I must have had the term director at a certain point, but I wasn't quite sure what it meant. I also did other things, like I would do audio stories all the time. Like I would record little, like, vignettes and then, like, music from the radio. And then, uh, and then like, you know, I would tell these little stories uh, with my tape recorder. Like I'd had, like, a, the, the, this karaoke machine that had two, you know, tapes that you could go at the same time. And so I was able to layer sound effects. And, mm. and I was always trying to tell stories. Uh, no, there wasn't language for that in my household because there was no tradition of that in my family. But that's what I was striving to do all the time. Um, and even, like, my earliest memories are like watching the whiz on tv (laughs) and this um like this like projector thing that would project stills from disney movies on the wall i remember just staring at the still being projected on the wall for what felt like hours to a however old i was i mean it was this is before i could really talk and get around and stuff i just Mm. remember there's something about that image in the dark or that sound in the dark some someone telling me a story that just was always so captivating. I like I think of it as always like the gifted children. Um and I'm referencing drama of the gifted child. I think anyone in the arts has a similar kind of relationship with the adults around them that there is love there, but there is a misunderstanding. You you know deep in your heart that they don't quite get you fully. And so <laughs> you start, you, I start to find ways to explain it to them better. And yeah, the arts provided that, you know, always at the heart of something I'm making is something I'm trying to say. And it's it's better this way than if I just said it in a sentence or I wrote a tweet or whatever. Like I can say something in a story um, that I can't say in a sentence or say directly. I don't. Mm. That's always been kind of true for me, and um, yeah, maybe it's a bit of a, a coping mechanism. But there's also a little something in there. I mean, you know, I'm a practicing Buddhist, but I don't. In terms of like past lives and all that stuff, I don't really know. I don't know who really knows, you know. But that's the stuff that makes me wonder if it's true, because there was there was an attachment to telling stories, and a knack for it. 
Yeah. That just doesn't make a ton of sense. And there, there isn't an obvious answer for it. The thing about past lives, it's like, can everyone really be a king? <laughs> I don't know if everyone could be a it's king. It's like everyone no. comes back, they were a pharaoh. <laughs> there were a lot of kings, though. No, I know, but all of us? The vast majority of human existence, though, has been pretty bad, I have yeah. to say. <laughs> Most people were peasants most of the time. and peasants, People don't say that enough. They don't. And peasants <laughs> were lucky to have one bath. <laughs> their whole life or you know what I mean it was bad y'all I mean people forget don't remember how bad things were I often um this is a segue but I often watch segue. old documentaries um about America specifically to remind myself how bad things mm-hmm. were because things are so bad but you have to when are you watching this at night usually yeah. <laughs> I mean yeah um usually when my boyfriend has gone to bed and I'm still my my brain is still going. I'll like last night I put on, you know, Kim Burns Jazz yet again and watched one of the segments for the hundredth time or whatever. But it it's good though, because you just remember there's a lot of as shitty as things are, there's a lot of people who spend their entire lives coming out of a lot of muck that we get the benefit of of not having to go through anymore. And it's just good to remember that too. But just to remind myself, oh, God, being black in the 60s, though, was still fatal. <laughs> yeah. And nobody cared. Neither party uh, was there a Barack Obama or Kamala Harris possible. Like, it just, there was no reparations. <laughs> you know, that wouldn't come up. <laughs> you know what I mean? In the 60s. So, I don't know. I try to, I, I, I do, I, I often find myself getting solace and inspiration from the ancestors that went through some pretty tough battles. Well, let's get into this because I think when I hear what you've said, in my mind, I'm like, well, I really couldn't say that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I should be saying that. It's, you know, it, it is so much about who and where it's coming from. Mm. If I said to you, but it was kind of good in the <laughs> 60s, you'd be like, I got to go. This interview's over. I don't know. I, I'm not, I don't have a, I, I think... I will say this. I think because of the nature of my show and because I and the show is very shady, mm-hmm. there's a cancel culture mentality about the show that isn't really true. I don't, I actually, when people say things. Great. I don't really get offended at we, we stuff get an like hour. that. <laughs> you know what I mean? I really don't. I don't. I think, but you're right. I think sometimes, going back to your earlier point, sometimes people can't hear things from certain people. That's also true. Well, so can can I say, um, when you were in high school, there are a bunch of filmmakers that, mm. that are inspiring you. And before you came here, I asked Lena, what would be something to ask you that's not yeah. asked about enough? Wait, Lena Wade? Yeah. Oh, Lord. And she said, <laughs> Telling she, on me, Lena. She, no, no. She, she very kindly was <laughs> no, like, talk about film references with him because he doesn't get asked it really enough. Mm. I, I'm specifically interested, when you were in high school mm. and you were figuring out that you want to do this. Yeah. Who are the people that you're like, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. That doesn't make sense, but I really respect that. The first one was Fosse because I'm a theater major. So right. the, you know, the first, um, the all school musical, I'll never forget starring Julia Crone as Sweet Charity. It blew me away. I'd never seen anything like that. I'd never seen a live musical at all. First of all, you know, 14 year old black boy from Houston. I'd maybe seen like, you know, like something on ice, but I'd never seen like a full on executed musical. And the first one I ever see is Sweet Charity, for God's sakes, that ground, that little groundbreaking gem. Um, And so because they did the play, I watched the movie 
didn't quite get it at that age, I have mm-hmm. to say, but was obsessed with it and then kind of started watching, you know, the other ones, Cabaret specifically and all that jazz. And because I'm already inclined to look at a piece of art and look at the look for the choices, I mean, boy, does Bob Fosse give you a lot of choices to to really chew on. And even though he's not like sort of acclaimed as a filmmaker, oh my God, he's a great filmmaker. Yeah, like really. I think in, it depends on who you're talking to. Completely invented the way we do musicals now. He invented that. Mm. You know, him and Gwen Verdon. Um, these even Sweet Charity, which sort of is at the end of a certain kind of musical, that sort of big, brassy things are on a set kind of musical, like Technicolor. Like it was at the end of that wave. Even Sweet Charity has all these innovations in it. So that was the beginning of it for me. And then it was Kubrick and Spike Lee. You know, right around the same time, I sort of was able to watch. Because uh, I, I had tried watching Kubrick films and I didn't get it. I just I tried watching 2001 a bunch of times, didn't get it. Tried watching a bunch of them and then eventually I watched Eyes Wide Shut. I think because my mother specifically walked out of it. Mm. That's funny. <laughs> so I, I, I watched that with my mother. Did you? Yeah, mine walked out of the theater. And, as you can tell, my relationship to my mom is. Well, you know what I saw with my mom, which is totally messed up, is I saw like I think the third. Nightmare on Elm Street movie yeah. with my mom in theaters. That's anyway, not that bad. I, I watched Boogie I was, Nights with her when I was, I was like 12. seven, though. So, okay, seven. You know. um, but anyway, I was into it. The point is, is that uh, <laughs> I watched Eyes Wide Shut and I hated it at first. Again, I'm 15 or 16 or so or whatever mm-hmm. age I was when that movie came out. And I didn't get it. But by the time Tom Cruise is being chased on the streets of New York, I'm suddenly on... I realize I'm on the edge of my seat. He has made this movie intentionally a little dull in the beginning, I'm realizing, so that it could just wash over me. Mm-hmm. And by the time we get to the last line of that movie, when she's like, you know, well, what should we do? And she very coolly turns to Tom, I don't know if I can say this, but very coolly turns to Tom Cruise and says, fuck. And then we cut to credits. I mean, you could have basically thrown me out of a window. It just knocked me out. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, you can make those kind of choices. You can be intentional in terms of your pacing as well and your mood. It's just like every time I just it opened me up. And that and then around that time I saw do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Oh." So it's okay to like be a film like to employ all of cinema's most sophisticated techniques and employ them on a story about black people. That was like another explosion, you know, in the in the high school mind of Justin Sibian. Um, and eventually I would go on to discover and, and adore a great many other directors. I, I recently posted on Instagram <laughs> my Mount Rushmore and Kubrick wasn't in it. And I got actually, it was shockingly, I don't even think people like follow me that closely, but I got a lot of thing about that. So there are other directors too, but in high school, those were the three. It was mm-hmm. Spike. Fosse and Kubrick. I have a question for you yeah. because you, you talked about in high school recognizing um, the intent that the filmmaker had and, and, and viewing it in the context in which it was made. Right. Um, I know someone uh, that we mutually love is Woody Allen and mm. I, I want to know just just as because I'm also making movies now and, I, and it's so peculiar because it's uh, a tricky situation a horrible situation um, that we've known about I mean, I think I knew about it as a teenager, right, but I right. didn't. I didn't put it all together. How do you, as someone that's inspired you, which I think you did inspire both of us, right. how do you navigate that now? 
I think this idea that we have to feel one thing or another about a person or a thing is actually new. Um, the human mind is capable of three-dimensional chess. A person is a multifaceted thing. And I'm not saying any of this to excuse it, but in my mind, the things that he may or may not have done, which I do take incredibly seriously, sits alongside his work as an artist. They sit alongside of each other. And so when I go back and I watch Annie Hall, you know, I don't think my viewing of Annie Hall is helping him perpetrate or helping anybody perpetrate. Mm. There's a lot of good stuff in the work he did. And... um Art and culture, you know, it's a thing that we pass along. It, it is, it's not ours. It's not his. It's not any one artist's. And so to do and to operate in the great tradition of American artists, but of artists all over the world, I think we have to see the art and we have to experience it. You know, we don't have the ability to go back in time and find out whether or not Shakespeare raped a bunch of people mm. he may have we don't know you know <laughs> we have the benefit of news media and all that kind of stuff now but the idea that an artist is also morally pure that expectation is kind of crazy when you look at history <laughs> and you look at um the nature of an artist in general and again this is not to excuse anything but for me i think we can grow up actually when we're able to look at multiple things about a person being true at the same mm. time and it's it's hard to let those things live side by side it is very difficult but i think we have to because the truth doesn't exist in the black and white the, the, my, there's a metaphor for this in cinema which is that like the reason why cinema is different than say theater or books or whatever is because cinema is a combination between i'm showing you something but you're also coming up with the stuff in between mm -hmm. you, you know like when it's a, i forget the name of the um of what the experiment is called, but it's, you know, out of Soviet cinema where you show a person with a neutral expression and you cut that with an orange and you ask the audience, what is he thinking about? Well, he's hungry. You cut it with a baby crying. What's he thinking about? He wants to be... We make up a part of it in our heads. Right. It's not just the filmmakers. And anyone who makes movies and goes through the process of making and releasing, you realize there's a large part of it that you have literally no control over. You have intent... And you have certain experiences that you try to control. But at a certain point, the movie is the audience's more than it is mine and more than it is any individual's. And um, so that's how I navigate it. You know, I had uh, there's a it's been a tough year of being black and having heroes. <laughs> and there's a lot of them, a lot of them who have meant a lot to me and a lot to other people in the black community who we are having to take a second look at historically in terms of what they've done. I'm not going to just rip out my history and pretend like I'm fine. I need my history. I need to revisit these artists and take a stand against what they did and call it out when I see it happening again. I think both things have to be true. Otherwise, you're asking me to erase even more of my history. It's not a fair ask. But don't you get asked unfair questions all the time yeah i say it's not an unfair ask not to you but no no to, i know i know but to america you know it's this this expectation that everyone is pure all of the time that does not come from a righteous place it comes from a place of shame and believing that we can be perfect as a way to quiet that feeling of shame. Mm. And unfortunately, I just know better. That doesn't ever really work. <laughs> yeah. So I refuse to be in that paradigm that I have to cancel something or anyone because 
you know, I'm capable of understanding as a human being what bad behavior is, as well as, you know, whatever isn't in, in their art that's important. Because if I don't see any hall, I'm not as good a filmmaker, period. If any hall doesn't exist, if Woody Allen's work doesn't exist, um, I'm not as good a filmmaker as I am. And shouldn't that be important, too? Isn't my mission important? What I want to say with my art you know, my behavior is also important to me, <laughs> but it's not an acceptance of their behavior as people to let the art in. Mm. It just isn't. And I and I also think you have to we have to be able to understand these people and their psychology because it's not like we all have a fix to it. It's not like you can say, well, stop all the raping and then it stops. That never has worked. So on, on some level, we have to understand the hearts and minds of these people who do these things and stop acting like we're so above it because mm-hmm. we're all in this human condition. We're all a hot-ass mess, okay? Maybe not to the same degree now, but we all have stuff, and we are all capable of things that we despise, frankly. And to look away because someone has done something, um, I, I think, keeps it happening, actually, in a not-esoteric way, in a very, like real way mm-hmm. but then you have to look at it and you have to let the thing sit by the other thing otherwise it, it exists in your blind spot well you know you you discuss this in the new season of the show mm. there's so many things you hit on but but something that's sticking out at me is that we all i think you used hot ass mess first time on the show uh-huh. i really like that <laughs> it's really quite good i find that in my life with the people that i know it's a lot easier to, to to just be transparent and to be honest about the things that are imperfect or idiosyncratic about you. But when we move to uh, digital, anything online, you can just see it in the way we present ourselves. It is such a curated presentation of who one wants to be. It's almost aspirational in nature. Yes. And I, I wonder, because I, I think about it for myself as someone who uh, is making movies and has to like reach an audience as you have done for 15 i think almost 15 years now Mm -hmm. will we ever get to a point where we can be hot ass messes online (laughs) and people will be like you know i don't love everything he has said and i find some of his faults a little disappointing (laughs) but it's okay which is how we feel about the people we know in our lives if we can do it in our lives, then we can do it. But we haven't been able to do that in our lives. I mean, this the thing that you just described isn't new. It's just that social media makes the fact of it credibly immediate. You can sort of see that reflection right away. Oh, these people are being phony. But people have always been phony. Like, imagine the beatniks. Like, imagine having a conversation with a white hepcat back in the day. Not to. Trying to talk to you about jazz or some bullshit. Like, it would be so irritating. We've yeah. always done that. We've always done that. It's just that we haven't had something so immediate at our fingertips mm-hmm. to do it with. And so now we can see it. But the thing is, is that everything, every technology we invent is just going to reflect what and who we are. It, you know, yes, I think there is an echo chamber that is reinforcing this idea that we have to have black and white thinking. But you know what's funny? When I when I just take Twitter off my phone, suddenly there's no pressure to have black and white. Suddenly all the opinions on Twitter that feel like the whole world mm-hmm. are suddenly literally not there. <laughs> and whatever is happening to my online persona is happening so literally off screen that it has no effect on my life. And so... Um, I don't know if it's the technology. I think it's I think it's us. <laughs> and I think that um the only thing that helps is 
well, not the only thing, but one of the things that helps is art. Just telling the truth in our art and showing ourselves as we are mm. um, in our art does a lot of good. And um, I mean, you can really see it. If, if you just look at them, if you just kind of draw a line between all of the black movies that have come out, I would say in the last 10 years, you see more people, you see more shades of people, you see more skin color. It, it is, you see more of us, you see an evolution towards multifacetedness and it's not perfect but you see a trend up you know mm. i think we are just starting to get to do that we being black people we are just starting to have enough access to the tools of cinema be they cinema on tv cinema in the theater cinema online cinema on our phones we are now able to express on our own behalves which i think is helping i, I it seemed like you knew vaguely your own truth uh, when you graduate college and you moved to Los Angeles mm. uh, in 2005. It was vague, yeah. <laughs> so I put it in there. Yeah, it's I, super vague. I, I gave it the out. Yeah. <laughs> you had the idea for the movie at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, in the interim between 2005 and 2012 when you released the trailer, mm -hmm. you have, I think, three different jobs uh, working in publicity. Right. Mm -hmm. If I get anything wrong, please correct sure. me. Sure, yeah. We're trying to get facts here. You're giving them. Okay. You have receipts and facts. I love it. I, I want to know, in, in those seven years, there are a lot of people that you and I probably know mm. that um, come to this city uh, with aspirations to make movies. They take a job like the one you had that is um, adjacent to, if not directly involved with the, the process of making movies. Right. It pays well enough. And there is some kind of stability, both in the work and financially. Right. And then they don't leave. They stay there, and 30, 40 years pass. And they retire, mm -hmm. happily or not happily. I, don't, I can't judge. Mm -hmm. In those seven years, did you ever think, fuck, I may not leave this? No. <laughs> no. The thought was so a no for me, like a hard no that I, I set up this whole thing. I didn't know. You dismissed it within six seconds. Oh, because I thought about it all the time <laughs> because I saw it also. I could see it happening. But in me, it was like, literally, I'm going to be a filmmaker or I'm not going to be anything that mm -hmm. I care about. I mean, it was so clear to me that I would never stop trying no matter what. And, you know, I thought in my naivete of being 23, it would take a few months. Right. It took eight years, but never, and it was hard, but never once did I think, ah, what if I just give in to this? Mm. Never once. Never, ever, ever, ever once. How did you stay positive? I don't know if it was a positive feeling. I was very depressed. I know now in retrospect that I was suffering from dysthymia, which is like a, a low grade and constant depression. I didn't know it at the time. What did you think it was at the time? I thought it was just life. <laughs> I thought it was wanting something I didn't have. And I thought as soon as I had that something, I'd be fine. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, subscribed to the belief that as soon as you start working in your purpose, everything just works out. Um, and then when that didn't happen, that's when I knew that something else was afoot. But yeah, at the time, it was not a positive feeling. It was more of a like, oh, my God. It's like when you're waiting for an airplane. Uh-huh. And the airplane just keeps getting delayed and delayed. You're, you're not actually going to stay in the city. You're going to go home. 
and you know you're going to go home eventually. But sometimes it takes a day or long. You know, sometimes it's yeah. outrageously delayed, and you just got to wait it out. You have to eat the shitty food. You have to eat the shitty food. You got to sleep on the sofa. You got to wonder, will this ever be over? And, and get no answers for a stretch of time. Mm. And then finally, the plane comes. That's how it felt. But there was never any doubt that I was going home. What did your days look like? I would usually, it, well, it would depend, but I'll give you like a, when I was at my craziest, <laughs> I would usually get up at like 5.30 a.m. and work on something. I had like a web series during some of the time mm -hmm. or I was writing something, but I'd work on something very early in the morning. And then I would meditate. And this is, again, this is me in, in the peak of my 20s hood, <laughs> trying to survive and, and make all the pieces fit. This is not every day, but it's a quintessential day. But meditate for a little bit, and then I'd go to work, and I would, you know, be a publicity assistant or coordinator or publicist, depending on what year we're talking about, mm -hmm. and um, typically would have an event to work. Um, you know, we had screenings all over town or various events, and then I'd come home and I'd keep working. I'd work on my own thing again until it was time to go to sleep or until I passed out or, you know, kind of hit a wall where I, I basically was like, if I can just hit six to seven hours, I'm not a guy who can sleep for two hours and be like, I'm here. No, I'm a mess. I'm a hot, hot, hot mess. And then on the weekends, I was a hermit. And it was just work, 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 work. On, it, it was just whether it was work for me or work for them was really the only difference. And, of course, I saw people and stuff, but that's what I remember the most is, like, people wanting me to come over or go check something out or whatever. And I'd be in my my little, like, either in my, you know, I was in a studio for a while, so I'd be, like, in the little corner in the kitchen where you're supposed to put a dining table. That's where I put my computer. Or I'd be literally in a closet that I kind of made an office uh, when I got my first one bedroom. And I would, uh, you know, jam out. I would just try to work through my scripts and when you're depressed and no one's waiting on the script and you're doing it for you that's really hard that was like that was the part that was that was the facing my demons part of it was like why is it that when i sit down and i'm finally i have access to my dream there's a blank page final draft is ready to go mm -hmm. and i yeah what is that i had to battle that for those seven years i mean still everyone i still battle it but it was particularly hard there because there was no one waiting for the pages, you know? No deadline. There was no deadline. Nobody cared whether or not I wrote a screenplay. I was the only one who cared. So obviously I had friends that supported me, but it, I was the only one, you know, waking up at night, like, when's that screenplay going to be done? And so I had to force myself through it. Mm. It was hard, man. What about love? There was a lot of attempts at love. I always wanted to be in love. I always wanted a partner. But it just never happened, and I never really had a like a gay adolescence either because I was realizing I was gay in high school and not hooking up with anybody, not really seeing anybody. And in college, you know, I went you – know, Chapman is very conservative, and mm -hmm. um, so I didn't really have much of a dating life there either. It really wasn't until I was a 20-something-year-old, incredibly insecure 20-something-year-old, and then the apps came along, and the apps made it a little bit easier to find other introverted people like me who hated going to bars. And I mean, it, the thing about Los Angeles, too, is like, you just, uh, unless you're a white guy and you're gay, like, there's just really, you never quite feel like you're in the right place. You know what I mean? Like, there would be like black nights, you know, in West Hollywood and stuff, and I'd go, but I didn't quite fit whatever that was. They were called. I mean, that's what we, that's what the children called them, you know, but they, I'm, I don't remember the name, Urban Night, I don't know. But, you know, there was like a night where you could go to like, you know, the Abbey or whatever, and they'd be playing hip hop and there were black people there. 
Well, I didn't quite fit in with that scene. I didn't have abs, still don't. Um, and then I'd go, you know, the Silver Lake and hang out with the Bears and the Cubs. Well, I didn't really fit that scene either because still black. I just never really felt attractive in any of those spaces. I never felt like... I, I don't mean to be ignorant on this subject, but yeah. what are, what Bears and Cubs? Oh, sweetie. Okay, Help so... Help me out <laughs> a bear, So a cub is a furry gay, typically white, but okay. could be any race. Um, but furry and just like a little chubby. I mean, these also the the terms are different depending on who you talk to. But a bear is, is usually a bigger version mm-hmm. of that. And then you have variations. You can have muscle cubs and muscle bears. You can have otters. Otters are otters. Skin, you like if you were really hairy, you'd be an otter. So I'm like, not hairy. Well, then sorry. You're more. I don't know what you would be actually. But that's the thing. That's that's the thing about it. That was so such a double sword. Is like there were names for everything but you. What do they call <laughs> uh, white guys that are actually Mexicans? Um, attractive. I think they would just start hitting on you. Really? Oh, yeah. Really? <laughs> oh yeah. What's with the animal thing? Why, I feel why? like you. Well, you know, I think it's because marginalized people tend to do to themselves what was done to them, and to categorize themselves and then create hierarchies among themselves. I think for some people, unconsciously kind of makes up for the fact that that's being done to you or it was done to you. And also in the gay community, there's all of these fads, like especially like when I got here, being skinny and twinky, which you'd probably fall into a twinky category if you shaved your mustache. <laughs> um, but like twinky guys, like that was what was cool. That was what everyone was into. And so if you're not that, there's all this tyranny in it. If you're not that, well, then you have to come up with a name for what you are. And that name is bare in this particular decade. But that we've the gay community has always grappled with this. You know, um, being bunched together as one thing and then fighting against that by having a new name for what you are now. And then there's a new name for that. And I mean, that's pretty common, I think, among marginalized communities. Okay, But because I'm sort of in the in between of two marginalized communities there, they're just I never, never felt at home in it. And um, so love was feeling really out of place most of the time or um, using the apps to find somebody to try to connect with. And I spent a lot of time chasing. I spent a lot of time trying to convince people to see in me a full human that was special and that they should focus at, focus on, you know. Mm. And, and that's really what it was for a long time. Do you remember the moment, like any of us, young or teenage, when we realized, oh, we're interested in, in that? Mm. Do you remember that moment for you? Well, what's that? Well, men or women or, or oh, not, or, yeah, boy, um, <laughs> yeah, I do remember the moment. <laughs> I think I was watching like a late night HBO situation. And I realized that I wasn't looking at the lady. <laughs> but it also was like... Is this a polite version of your story? Yeah, it is. You don't have um, to be polite here. I don't really remember the specific details, but I just remember, <laughs> like, actually, I remember looking, <laughs> rewinding. Not, I don't think you could rewind back then, so how did I do that? It was a TiVo situation? No, there was no TiVo back then. But anyway, there was like, you know how they used to give you HBO for free, like, randomly mm-hmm. back in the day? It was one of those times. And I was watching this scene, and there's like a, I think I remember a Zoom shot or a Zolly. I'm not sure what the technique was, but we were moving in on a young couple having the sex. What's the show? 
I don't know. It was like softcore HBO porn. Those. Where you just see like tits occasionally and whatever. Sorry, mom. Anyway, Those but are I was, such weird programs. They're very weird. And you can see happening. the sock covering. Anyway, the point is, is that I was watching that and re- recognizing where my eye was going. But that was the culmination of a lot of other clues as well. That I, if I'm being honest, probably started much earlier. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know that that's what that meant, you know. But I, I yeah, I think I was into the dudes more than the ladies from the minute you know that. <laughs> yeah. But um, I was also Catholic and therefore, this is shady, but therefore capable of self-denial. And I didn't admit it to myself. I had to admit it to myself a few times before mm-hmm. I was able to tell others, you know. Um, so, yeah. But it was young. It was young. Catholicism really does a number on uh, anyone who... You know what's so interesting? Catholicism is all about p- the patina on top of the thing. Yeah. Because the patina is actually quite beautiful. Catholicism is beautiful. Sure. Like the masses are gorgeous, you know, presentations. I fell asleep. But there was like nothing feeding me at the bottom of the well, you know. And in fact, there was a lot of stuff that was suggesting that I didn't belong the way I was. And it just didn't speak to me the way art did. And the way even some of the other Christians or spiritual people at my high school spoke to me. And I I knew it wasn't for me at a young age. Mm. And I, I, you know, my spiritual quest is also a whole thing. But um, I think what it, it, it made me appreciate, though, the artifice a little bit. You know, the, the appreciate a mask when I see one for its beauty, but also for what it is it is trying to cover up. Like, it, it instilled the sense of that in me. Like, I, I could sniff that out because I was Catholic. <laughs> this is very shady to Catholics, but this was my experience of being Catholic. You, you described know? yourself earlier as a, as a shady person. Yeah. That the show was shady. I think so. What does that mean? I think shade is a... You know who I think of when I, I say the word shade? I actually think of Lester Young who is a jazz musician who um, he invented like a new way of playing the saxophone, like that smooth saxophone that we now associate with jazz. Like Lester Young kind of invented that way of playing. He also invented words like cool. He literally invented the actual word cool. And the idea of saying that something was cool came from Lester Young. He also invented the word bread for money. I mean, countless things. He was calling other men lady. Lady Ellington's coming over. Quiet. He called white people the grays. Um... Shady is to me. Can we bring that one back? I love that one. Actually, I thought I think that one's so good. But he, I don't know that he invented shade, but to me, like that's kind of where it starts. You're an oppressed person, and you're in a, you're in a marginalized section of. Um, and this is true for anybody. It's it's just true for men. You know, straight white men feel oppressed at times. But mm. you are in an oppressed situation. How do you communicate something without uh, without drawing attention to yourself or drawing alarm to yourself? Well, you say it was shade, honey. <laughs> you know, and I think like shade is a way to get along. It's a way to survive in a in, a, in an oppressive environment. It's a way to make your jokes. Make fun, acknowledge the ridiculous thing that is happening to you, but that you must bear, and just get a little bit of steam out while you while you deal. Mm. That to me is what shade is, and it's a language. It is a language. It is a way of. It's a style of communicating, and um, it also is really good for a person who has a lot of shame, because shade and and that little sense of humor on top of the tragedy, honey, that thing. It's really good for hiding things that you're ashamed about. So for a gay kid coming out of Texas, I mean, what other language would I speak? <laughs> you know, um, 
you know, of course, famously Shade. I think the popular culture learned about Shade from RuPaul. Mm. You know, it, it's, it's an art form. It really is. Well, there's a time uh, in 2012, 2013, when you are uh, in search of having white people approve your idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, you put the trailer. I would have taken black people, too, if they I had know, money. But most of the people <laughs> you seem to be meeting with. They always seem to be white. You're right about that. I don't that. know what that... Maybe a coincidence? Know. No. We have to look into this. Why is it that yeah, white people we'll seem do, to have an advantage? We'll do a study <laughs> that no one will read. Yes. Um, and some will deny. Um, <laughs> it's unfortunately true. So you put out the, 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 the trailer for a film that did not exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I watched this morning. It's good. Yeah. It actually really does reflect the, the values of the show. Making, yeah, yeah, what you ended up making. So... Yeah. Um, a lot of the cast did not happen, though. No. I'm sure they feel bummed out about that. I'm sure they do, too. Yeah. Um, but I also come from the tradition of theater where a character is the thing that exists forever. Yeah. It's the actor that changes do we depending have to on do? the time. Yeah. Um, so you make this. it. Uh, uh, you hope that it will garner somewhere between like 100 and 200,000 views. Mm-hmm. It, gets a, yeah. it gets a million in three days. Yeah. You raise twenty five thousand. It exceeds the Indiegogo amount. I think you get forty five thousand, something like that. Yeah, we want. Well, we wanted five thousand. You wanted five thousand. And we got twenty five. Yeah. Now. Okay. And then uh, after it goes viral, you get all the meetings mm-hmm. that you hoped you would get. Yeah. Sure. And in the process of doing these meetings, uh, I I would call it. Uh, it seemed like a sort of collective uh, disinterest. In in the movie, although Fear. an initial interest then followed by... They knew something was there. Yeah, but, but the finance side said, what the hell is this? They knew something was there, but for people to commit to it, they were just too scared. Honestly, they were just too scared. Hmm. And, there, and there was just a lot of... I mean, for an original script to come from somebody with just no star power, nothing, no one attached, just an idea and a trailer. And this is really before... You know, this is like right around the time of Awkward Black Girl. So we hadn't yet seen that something can transition and really survive from the Internet to the TV screen or to the movie theater. This We're we're all kind of figuring this out at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was really hard. Everyone was excited by it. Everyone got it. But everyone was scared, too. Is there, again, not a moment where you think, God, I've made it this far. I, I wrote this oh. thing. This is crushing to have people... It was like waiting for the airplane. I wasn't leaving the airport. It's the airplane again. It is. is I, was... I feel like you're on the airplane at this point. No. And the plane, Ooh, won't, no. La- the plane won't land. No, because here's the thing. When the trailer came out, I didn't have any money. Mm. And so I quit. Like, I, when the trailer came out and got really hot, we spent some of the money so we could start our casting director, Kim Coleman, who, thank God, dealt with us through some pretty ratch-ass, no-money-having-ass times, um, and started to cast the film because we thought maybe we, if we started atta- if we could get someone attached, mm-hmm. maybe we could keep pushing it up the hill. And I realized that this time I can't both take these meetings about the film and keep my job, so I quit my job. I stepped out on faith. But that was a whole year that went by before we made the movie. So I was broke, like about to go back to Houston broke, like had to learn. Like I remember Nia Gervier, who plays Kelsey in the film, and Lena Waithe and I trying to figure out, Nia was trying to teach us how, like what to press to get through like the Korean version of the food stamp line so that we could actually get to a person on the other line and get our food, like get our, you know, um, it wasn't food stamps, it was unemployment. I was broke, man. It was, it was terrifying, actually. 
And not only is it terrifying, but it's terrifying because I've been taught my whole life to have a job and to get benefits mm-hmm. and to put in your time and to when you retire, do what you your 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 passion or your hobbies. You do that later. I was not in the airplane, bruh. I was not even in line to get on the airplane. I was like one of those people who you know is off in the corner just trying to find a, a little area with some less light with the jacket over the face trying to get some sleep. Got it. So you're it the person rough. who's like, my flight got canceled. They're trying to get waitlisted onto a yeah. plane. Yeah. Uh, California has exploded, so I don't know where I'm going to go. It was just like that. Okay. And Lena actually got me through a lot of that because we would just call each other and we had a word for it. Are you on watch, boo? As in suicide watch, but don't take it too literal, kids. But we would call each other and be like, girl, are you on watch? I'm on watch. And we would go and we'd find a cheap meal. And we'd make each other laugh and give each other pep talks. And mm-hmm. I mean, I walked up and down, you know, that Wilshire neighborhood with Lena sometimes, just going over and over again. But what if they never will? No, they will. Just just pepping each other up for the various things that we were trying to get through. But it was excruciating, actually, that year. Is it hard to think back on now? No. Because you got through it? No. Because I'm in a place right now where I want to experience the things that I was ashamed to experience at the time and that sense of worthlessness Mm. i'm okay experiencing it now but at the time it was very hard and i had to tell myself i was going to make it even when i didn't believe it that was not an easy time and people think it's so people think oh well a to b got it no that was the worst time that was the worst time and it didn't get a lot better, really, until maybe season two of the show. But that feeling of worthlessness, they don't see me. They'll never see me. You really felt that? Oh, my God. I mean, at the time, I, I felt as much of it as I could, but I was really trying not to feel it. Because if I felt it fully, I would have fallen apart. But I'm at a place in my life where I want to feel all of those things again. I want to not be, I don't want to hold back that feeling of shame. I want to feel it fully. You know, I got like, I know we're, I'm kind of skipping ahead, but like I got my first like middling mixed review this season, or really two of them. And, and they weren't even that bad. But the feeling of shame, that's like an ancient feeling in me. I had to give myself like a full day to let that pass. Because it's the parts that we, the parts where we repress are the parts where we're actually ashamed. But to feel the shame is actually to be free of the shame. What did your mother think? I think she was worried. I think she was concerned and and was also, hey, if you need to come home, you can come home. But I didn't want to hear that at the time. That's not what I wanted to hear. But that's all she could really offer me. That was, I was walking through something that she had never heard of. Make a movie. You quit your job to make a movie. That's not something that she grew up understanding was a thing and it really but i will say to my mom's credit as suspicious as she was about the whole arts thing when she saw the concept trailer that i made she got it but yeah i mean what can you what can you say mm. she didn't understand that experience you know very few people did and do uh, there's an experience in your life that i i uh i don't understand and i think many people don't understand mm. it has nothing to do with shame at least mm. i don't think um, but I am curious because it's addressed in the second season of your show, mm. but at six, your father passes. Mm. Where are you at with that right now? My father passing began a obsession with death, but I had a lot of people pass. My mom was the youngest of nine. And so there were lots of aunts and uncles who were just passing all the way through my upbringing. But it was sort of like... It's honestly like it's like being told that you have a third arm or something. 
Like, you almost don't feel the wound because it was cut so long ago. But now as I'm an adult and I started to explore it, yeah, there's a lot of stuff I've had to kind of process about that, about not feeling like I had a full father figure to show me how to walk through the world as a man, period, as a black man, period. Not even the gay part. Just like, how do you navigate this world as a black man? I didn't have somebody doing that in front of me. I was really improvising, you know? And uh, it's so funny you ask about him because I was just talking to my mother. When he died, I never felt him. Like, I never felt his presence on the other side. I said I did, but I never really did until very recently. And... um I don't know. I think learning to be my own father has to be some part of the lesson that I'm here to learn because I just didn't have one. I mean, I didn't have one after that age. I didn't have a man in my life like that. Um, so, yeah, I've 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 felt of as much of that as I can. But it is it's like a it's like a whole part of me is just kind of missing. Um, but I'm at pe- I'm really at peace with it. I'm at, I, I'm I'm totally at I don't know if totally is the right word, but yeah, I'm at, I'm at a at a resting place with it. I am. What happened recently that made you reinterrogate that? Oh my goodness. It's going to sound silly. It's going to sound silly, but I'll tell you, can I do I have time to tell you a little story before we get to it? So, I um um I have a therapist who is was inviting me to sort of explore Jungian archetypes in terms of trying to understand my personality. One of the things that came up is um, the concept of the puer, which is the boy that never quite grows up. A lot of a lot of us artists are puers, mm-hmm. um, but the other side of a puer is the cynex. Like you know, you have yourself and you have your shadow self, and the cynex is like an old crotchety man. <laughs> and so I give both of those energies, you know, constantly, sometimes at once. But one of the stories that's told in it is the benefit of having an absent father or a hard father. I'm actually not going to repeat the story because coming out of a non-Jewish person's mouth is actually kind of anti-Semitic, but there's a, star, there's a story about a Jewish father having his son climb a ladder and jump so he can catch him. You can look it up. You can Google it. But basically the point of it is that sometimes our fathers are here to teach us the really hard lessons. to like let us fall all the way on our faces so mm-hmm. that we can learn that we actually can survive really terrible things. And I think for better or worse, on purpose or not, part of God's plan or not, my dad certainly taught me that. And that's a really great lesson to have, you know, as hard as it's been. To know that I can survive not having a father and still be a man, that's a lesson. Have you seen how it uh, has affected your work? Yeah, I think Lionel especially articulates that kind of longing for leadership or longing for a role model and that that the dance between those two things Mm. you know i think the reason that comes up so much in my work is because i never really had someone tell me you know this is how you do this this is the identity you should have when you go ask for a loan or this is the identity that you should have when you socialize i never had that example so it's always been a tenuous dance there's something um uh, at once really sad and and really funny that happens mm-hmm. in the first episode of the new season uh where a character makes a joke about uh erasing the memory of um a prominent um black filmmaker oh you're taking it to erasing the memory that, that he, that, that's that's what he said he said there no. was some erasure there was some uh you talking about spike yeah yeah no he says i'm canceling my references Got it. I'm canceling my references until he stops talking shit about young black filmmakers. Yes. 
And that's the statement. Okay. <laughs> I mean, what does it mean? It means literally that. <laughs> I was paying homage to the great Spike, and he took offense to that and said so publicly in the press. Mm -hmm. And that hurt my heart. That was a torpedo to my heart. And I realized, oh, he doesn't know he can walk in the door that he opened for all of us. He thinks that if he, if he stands beside the door and he heckles those of us that walk through it, then he'll earn his place there. But Spike, you're already a king to us. We showed up for you and said your name loud before anybody at the Academy dared to let you on that stage. We showed up for you. And I just wanted to remind him that in my own way. There are no more references to you. It's all good. <laughs> but I heard what you said, and I got the message. But just so you know, like, all I'm trying to do is walk through the door that you opened for me. Mm. And I think that that's my right. And you taught me that. I didn't even know you, and it, ma it made me sad because I know, I mean, he means the world to me. And if he said something about me, I'd be like, what the fuck's happening? But that's what I mean by, like, we have to learn to let two things sit at once. It's like... What we love about Spike is that he doesn't give a shit. Yeah. Like he says whatever is on his mind. That's what we love. You don't get do the right thing. Yes, but it's a lot easier when he's like shitting on Reggie well, Miller than it is yeah, in life on you. And life isn't easy, you know, and you have to, you know, not be debilitated when that happens, which is why I put it in the show, because I know I'm not the, I know I'm not the only one. I'm not trying to drag nobody else into it, but I'm not the only filmmaker, black male, first time filmmaker that this has happened to. Mm. And it can be debilitating. There's a there are filmmakers who we have not heard from again. A hero tells you you can be someplace. A hero shows you how to be. But you can't idolize them to the point where when they hurt you or when the hero worship is actually a shell. It's not freeing you anymore. You should still be able to move forward and let that go and say, oh, this person, you know what? This person meant the world to me. And if it wasn't for do the right thing, that explosion in my brain that had to happen for me to be the artist that I am wouldn't have happened. And thank God it happened. And so what if he said something about me? You ever talked to him about it? No. You know, we spoke a few times. Um, he invited me to talk to his class. We'd done a panel and stuff together. And the way we met is that he found my number and called me. I think it was intentional that he didn't call me to tell me that he had an issue with me and he decided to tell The Hollywood Reporter. I take that as an intentional thing. And so I didn't feel a need to call him. We're not buddies. He's not my mentor, obviously. And he's a person that I respect and, and truly think is one of the greatest filmmakers of our generation. But... I didn't think it was appropriate to call him. I felt like the appropriate way to respond is with my art, which is what I always do. Well, also in the art is uh, the the reference to Tyler Perry, which I thought you did a very good yeah. job uh, performing in, yeah. in the situation. <laughs> oh, thank you. He was going to maybe do it, is what I read. Yeah, I, I he had called. You know, it was an interesting year because I had had this thing with Spike, but that happened, and then right after that, sort of unrelated, Tyler Perry, who appears by name in my first concept trailer with the words fuck Tyler Perry, you know, coming out of Sam's mouth. Mm -hmm. um, he calls me out of the blue and is like, yo, man, do we have beef or what? And I was like, no, we don't. And I got a chance to tell him something that I've been feeling since really the start of my career and since I pitted my work as kind of like the anti-his work. I did that too, but so did the press. They took it further. Um, and when I made the movie, you know, I realized now that I'm on the other side of the Q&A line, now I'm le I'm left, I'm leaving audiences wanting. And I was like, oh, I get it. It's not Tyler's job to make stories for me. 
it sucks that I don't have stories for me. But that's not Tyler's job. Tyler's doing his job. He's making stories for also an underserved community, and they get to see themselves. Mm. They get to see themselves however they want to see themselves. That is their right. That is his right to tell the stories that that, they, that people love. And I just felt so bad about that. And when he called me, it was like finally I have the moment to tell him that I don't, I'm not against you. I don't want that perception out there. And I've been having this fan fiction in my mind of you coming to Winchester and having this conversation with Sam, who I think she thinks about film the way I used to before I made my first feature or think about, you know, other black artists the way I used to before I made my first feature. Where it's idealized before it becomes a reality. Well, it's like, you know, if someone says or shows some aspect of blackness that isn't, that you can't specifically own, well, then they're not doing enough. And how dare, you know, sort of it's they're doing something wrong because who else do you blame when you don't get to see yourself? Like, mm. who else do you blame? Well, you said in May of 2018 uh, in the New York Times, you said, here's the thing about being a black creator. Scrutiny is part of being in the ring. Black folks in the black diaspora are so starved for content that when you're the only person telling the story, there's all these people that are like, well, where's my story? I remember reading this article about how Black Panther had failed the queer community by not expressing LGBT issues. And I was like, but it did so many things. It literally changed cinema for black people forever and was an all-black cast and made all the money in the world and introduced African themes and is opening in Saudi Arabia. But we didn't have any gay characters. So, so let's just throw, throw the whole thing away. That kind of thing can be a lot, but it's the cost of telling stories in an oppressive society. You have to be prepared to take some of those jabs and you do the best that you can. Yeah, because it's also their right to throw the jabs. That's the other thing. This is a democracy. This is a place where everyone gets a voice. So you get to write the think piece that annoys me. <laughs> that is your right. You know, you get to say, oh, Sam's just another tragic mulatto character. I'll never watch this. That You get to do that. You know, the other thing I love is that, like, black people, we don't take your word for it. Anybody's. It could be another black. It doesn't matter. We're not going to just take your word for it because that never worked out. You ain't seen yourself your entire life. Something makes you excited that you, maybe you get to see yourself this time and you're still not in it. Yeah, you're pissed. Mm. And I think it's valuable. I think it's valuable information uh, to have as an artist. It doesn't feel good to hear it. Um, it doesn't feel good to be misunderstood, particularly because I, th I don't know any artist that's an artist because they, they felt so understood that they wanted to say it in a weird way. <laughs> no, we all feel deeply misunderstood. That's why we're artists. And so when people don't get it, it really hurts. I went to high school and people saw me really clearly. And now <laughs> yeah. I'm and sane now, and well-adjusted. I'm super well-adjusted. And I just want to make like movies about the black experience. No, of course not. So I don't know. It was, it was, it's, it's one of those, both things are true things. Mm. You know, the work is powerful and groundbreaking and it's doing things. And I can personally feel a direct line between what I did with that movie and the place that we're at right now. Um, but that doesn't mean that everyone has to see it. There are artists that never even felt acclaim in their lifetime and they were geniuses. Black, white. I mean, that's so common. I get to actually make things and some people get it while I'm alive, <laughs> while I'm making it. I mean, that's got to be a blessing, you know? Um, there are so many artists who we adore and we understand it now, but they had to die for us to get it. Mm. And, yeah, so just because you're an artist, well, good for you. Just because you did it well, well, good for you. That doesn't mean the audience is going to get it. You got to be ready for that because the, uh, the, the artist breaks the ground. And it's, all, it's sometimes it's a thankless job. 
you know, but we got to do it. That's our, it's our lot in life. It's our passion. And I, I'm determined to make it my joy, you mm-hmm. know. You, you, you mentioned that uh, this season garnered the first kind of mixed yeah. review for you. Yeah. Congratulations. <laughs> for it taking this long. It's really... <laughs> well, it was terrifying having 100%, 100%. Yeah. It really was. Yeah. There's a line, there's a line in broadcast news that I'll go back to you on this, which yeah. is Albert Brooks to, to William Hurt, and he says, what's it like having history's longest winning streak? Mm. And uh, I'm not saying you've had history's longest winning streak. No, I have not. But you yeah, no, you but haven't. I know what you mean. Though it, it applies. I yeah. also just love that movie. Um, so good. I have a question. Just where you're at right now with uh, how and where you find uh, value and worth? Because in that period between 2005 and 2012, it was hard, and it didn't come easy, mm-hmm. and you worked through it. So where do you find it now? If it if it's not going to be through the affirmation of viewers or through your idols, where are you finding that? Well, I think it, it still comes from those places, but I think that those are unstable sources. And for me, it's, for me, I find it in my quiet time. For me, I find it in my Buddhist practice when it's just me chanting or it's just me sitting still and listening to my breath. Sometimes I'll tape record myself or sometimes I'll journal. But just to see what yourself and to let yourself be seen by yourself is incredibly healing. You know, when you know what you did, it makes it a little bit easier to deal with it when they don't get it. And I didn't ever, I, I didn't spend enough time acknowledging what I did before. It's sort of like when I succeeded in something, it was like, oh, I didn't die. But I didn't celebrate the thing I did. And I, I've been trying to do that a lot more of just going, you know what, no matter what people say, no matter what, what, what. I know what I did here, and I'm excited by that, genuinely, not because I'm trying to puff myself up or because I'm trying to not feel ashamed or whatever. Like, I know what I did. I see where I failed. I see where it didn't come together the way I wanted, but I see where it did, and I remember being scared that it wouldn't, and I remember how hard it was to get it there, and I fucking appreciate myself for that. I try to do that more, you know, um, and it's incredibly freeing. <laughs> I very much suggest it. Something my um, I was told recently is that, you know, when you start to feel your own shame and just like feel it and like let it go, what people say and do just bothers you a little bit less, you know, because you know better. It just it just bothers you like a little bit less. And I think that's kind of as much <laughs> as good as we can get it. You know, mm-hmm. I really do. But when I didn't get an Emmy nomination for the second season, and I deserved one, okay, I made like the second season of Dear White People. I'm so glad you're saying this. Is one of the best things that was out there that year, okay? Season three, I think, is fantastic. But season two was on some other shit, okay? Mm-hmm. Season two was some stuff. And it had a lot of ta- uh, talented people. It had a lot going on, and I think we executed. I think what people, the shift that people are feeling this season is that I very purposely took the veneer off. I took the, I scrubbed the polish off and it's a little more raw this season, but that season was incredibly polished. It was made with a TV audience in mind. It was made with like a binging kind of appetite. Um, and it got not, I mean, nothing from the Academy, like just like, just like, let's give Blackish another nomination. And that's no shade to Blackish, but it's like we are always competing for the same two slots and things, which is also part of the tyranny of awards. It's fine. But the point is, is that I didn't get anything for it. And that hurt. 
But I'm so glad that that happened because it made me remember. It was like, you know, it took me a day to get over it. It wasn't even that bad. It was just like I had worked really hard to get noticed in that particular way, and we did it. And it made me so clear that you have to stop and appreciate what the hell you just did because there are other people out there that are going to be fed by it. And if you don't know what you did, then award award isn't going to make you actually feel any better. Because if you get an award this time, well, what if you don't get an award next time? Maybe it's true. Maybe you are a piece of shit. The award doesn't make it go away. And I was trying to make it go away, that feeling like I didn't belong or that feeling like, you know, I wasn't really that good or I didn't have anything to say, that worthless feeling I was talking about. I thought, like, getting nominated for the Emmys would make that go away. And when I didn't get nominated, I had to deal with the feeling. In order to get through that, you have to know what you're doing. You have to see yourself. Mm. You know, you really do. Because there's no one that's going to see it for a long time. <laughs> no one's going to see how much work you're putting in. They don't see the effort. That's sort of the point of it. And um, so you have to appreciate yourself. And you have to celebrate it with your artists and your collaborators. You really have to do that stuff. I mean, it's so lame sounding. But yeah, the gratitude journal, you got to have one. You got to do it, man. It's not going to come from the outside. It never comes, even when you think it comes in, in, the, in an award or an offer or a deal. It, it still doesn't come from them. Mm. It never comes from them. When you're alone in the gratitude journal mm. time or whatever you're doing to, to, to make yourself feel all right, do, do you think your, your, your father would be proud? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm my father's son. Everywhere I go, people say, oh, you sound just like your dad. Um, I'm a historian like he was. I'm kind of a renaissance man like he was. I think he'd be very proud of me. I never answered your question the other day, by the way, about whether, like, how I knew I could feel my dad. But I'll, I'll tell you the story. I would, I would tell you the lead-up story, but I didn't tell you the actual conclusion. The point of it all, of me saying that, like, you know, sometimes having a father is, is having that father be absent. The point of that story is that at the end of the premiere... Um, of season three. I'm exhausted, but I, I'm recognizing, oh, I just moved through a lot of stuff. And now we had, and I'm walking in my room and I feel this thing like just fall over on its face. And it's a picture of my mom and my dad from back in the day, like right when they first met. And this thing has been sitting upright since all of the earthquakes that happened, all that stuff. It fell over just then as I walk in from the premiere. And as I'm picking it back up and I'm placing it in front of me, I pick up the other thing that it knocked over, and it was a ruler that said, rule the world. And I didn't recognize that that's what it said as I'm placing it. It was cinematic. I'm placing it directly in front of the picture of my father, and it says, rule the world on it. And I felt him there. I felt him there, and I felt proud because I felt like I moved through that like a man moves through things. You know what I mean? Like, I felt it. I felt the difficulty of it. I felt the shame of a bad review. I felt the, I felt it all. And I still moved through it. And I was so proud of myself for just being able to do that and not to have to fight and hide my feelings and, and tell, you know, be cute about it. Like, I just felt everything and I moved through it. And I was feeling so proud of that. And I had that moment. And I, I don't know, that, that stuff means something to me. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I took that as, as a symbol of, Maybe now I've arrived at some new plateau of manhood, and now maybe we can, you know, I can feel his presence on the other side if there's another side. Well, welcome. Yeah. And uh, thank you for coming here and, and going through this. I think uh, the answer is to just keep moving forward. Yeah. And it seems you've done that. That's a great interview, man. Thank you. Justin thank you Simeon, for having me. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for letting me tell that story.
And that's our show. I want to give a special thanks this week to Justin Simeon. Season 3, Volume 3 of Dear White People is now available to stream on Netflix. To learn more about Justin, be sure to visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. If you'd like to drop us a line, you can email us at talkeasypod at gmail.com. And this show, Talk Easy, is available to stream on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. As always, our executive producer is David Chen, graphics by Ian Jones, illustrations by Krishna Shenoy, design by Ian Chang, social media by Ghani Zur. Our music is by Dylan Peck and Jin Sang. Our engineer for today's episode was Tim Moore out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. Our associate producer is Caroline Reebok, and the show is produced by Neil Innes. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. We'll be back next Sunday with Peter Bogdanovich. Until then, have a good week, everyone. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.